One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast episode discusses sexual assault. If this episode is triggering, please contact 1 800 Respect. That's 1 800 Respect. I thought I could do football. I can't. I just can't. It's so long. It is. It what is you're hearing long. right I'm now like, is like, myself, like, Demi Lynch, and my so guest, far. Beck Cameron, chatting away about AFL and Clementine Ford. However, my interview with Beck will be looking at some more serious issues. Today, Beck is here to talk to me about her sexual assault and how it led to an affair, her losing her job, her taking her ex-boss to court, and years of trauma. This is an in-depth discussion about sexual assault, so if you believe this type of conversation may be triggering, perhaps skip this podcast episode. I thank Beck so much for being so brave and telling her story on today's podcast episode. Hopefully our conversation will help other survivors know that they're not alone and that the certain feelings or behaviours they're experiencing right now after an attack or after taking their attack at a court, it's normal and it's okay. What you're feeling now, how you're acting now, it's okay. This is Beck Cameron. To kick off this podcast interview, I would like to ask you about your life before this horrible experience happened to you, before your life had that arsehole of a man in it. Tell me about your life. Like, tell me, tell me your story. Oh, you my story. Yes. Well, I mean, if we want to kind of go very broadly and I'll kind of chunk it down to around the specific time, but you know, I grew up in the country. I um, spent a lot of my time in martial arts. And I I think it's fair to say that a big part of who I am is very much as a result of being a part of martial arts since I was about seven. So I've, I've done karate. I think I always wanted to learn karate because I went to a, um, a school holiday event and I saw that there was a girl in charge of the boys. And I just went home to mom and was like, I need to go and join that karate club because the idea that a girl got to tell the boys what to do I thought was just the most she was she was probably 15 or 16 at the time and to me she was like Xena warrior princess or Wonder Woman just I wanted to be able to push boys around which I think a lot of young girls could probably identify with because from a very young age you you're still aware of the idea that like boys get treated one way girls get treated one way and how that has a flow on effect in your probably very rudimentary young woman understanding. When I finished school, I moved out of home. I was about 17 at the time. And being a martial artist, I would say I was definitely very cocky in terms of the way I conducted myself. I had a very inflated ego when it came to self-defense and concepts of self-defense. I would walk home drunk. I remember walking home drunk, so drunk one night, I couldn't even remember my pin number to get money for a taxi in the days when you need money for a taxi. I don't want to show how old I am, but... <laughs> that old um so yeah it wasn't really until I got into my kind of mid-20s when I started to study social work and I started to engage with women who um 
were victims of domestic violence. You know, one of my first cases when I was working in a legal centre as a social worker was a woman who, in her very broken um, Mandarin, had come here with her husband and started telling me this really terrifying story of what her life was like. And as a brand new social worker, I really, it really showed me how much I didn't understand, but it also showed me the reality of the situation when she didn't turn up for an appointment ever again. And I, to this day, have no idea what happened to her. Um, so that was my first real understanding of like, okay, well, this is definitely something that I want to be involved in and center some of my work around. Meanwhile, you know, my life was ticking along. I had this great partner and, and yeah, I was just doing what most of us do in our early 20s, which is like try to work out who the fuck we want to be. A lot of the time we're binge drinking and going out too late and getting up and going to work and just trying to balance this whole like I'm a grown up but now I'm now a professional and yeah I was going through that and it hit pretty hard in 2012 when my sister-in-law who was living with us at the time committed suicide and you know my partner it was his little sister and that was a huge like that was the first time I ever really feel like life got knocked off off center and um, the next couple of years were really kind of us wading through the world of, you know, incredible grief and trauma and trying to recontextualize your understanding of the world through this new lens that doesn't have this person in it anymore. And that was, again, another huge lesson in terms of the work I want to do in understanding people and working out how to connect with people in a way that can serve them to have the best life possible. I'm going to interrupt this conversation with just another trigger warning. This next part of the interview is a deep dive into Beck's sexual assault. Please contact 1-800-RESPECT if during this conversation you are triggered. The context of the assault that happened to me, which was a number of years later in 2017, my partner and I, who's now my husband, we were both incredibly traumatized I had been working in child protection and I'd had a lot of incidents where I was nearly hurt by clients or you know supporting women in domestic violence situations uh, and ending up getting threats made to myself and so you know my partner's going through or my husband's going through this incredible loss I'm managing workplace related PTSD and I started this new job which was not social work it was sales And at the time, it just kind of seemed like the beacon of light that came out of nowhere. And I worked with these really dynamic people um, who were kind of top of their game. And there was all this talk of this thing that I'd never really heard of, which was personal development. And they were talking about Tony Robbins and they were talking about uh, the law of attraction. And they were talking about, you know, concepts that you see in The Secret. And I'd only ever seen that stuff made fun of. But having to explain to me, And these guys are talking about the potential for wealth creation and the potential for moving up in the organization. And I was just hooked um, because along with all of that came all this positive psychology that they drilled into me, which was just like, you know, we believe in you. We value you. We want to see you thrive and grow and make a shit ton of money and have fun doing it. We want you to have a great life. And I was just in hook, line and sinker. And that was, I think, really difficult for my husband who was still going through the grief and he was still trapped in like all of the cycles we'd been trapped in before. 
And me starting this job drew a huge wedge between us because I was suddenly coming home really excited, really happy. And, you know, as much as he struggled with that, I also struggled being around him because he wasn't that way and he was Mm. still stuck where he was. And I had kind of not found something new, but I'd escaped to something new. Yeah. You're both mourning in different ways. Yeah. A hundred percent. I was very, I think I was quite in denial about what I was feeling. Mm. And I found this new shiny thing and thought this is going to be the thing that I use to drag me out of the hole that I feel like I'm in. Yeah. And um, so I became very attached to my colleagues and I, you know, spent maybe 12 hours a day out of the house with this job. And eventually we got to the point where we were celebrating a huge sales target. We'd smash, you know, we wanted 200 sales or something like that and we'd smashed it and you know I always think to the 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 way this panned out in the sense that I was the person that did the last sale on the last day that we could do it at like 4:49, and we needed one more and not only did I get that I sold two and I was like it was me that ticked it over the line and when I think about the chain of events and how you know if I hadn't done that and this is where your mind goes when you're the victim of abuse or assault. Yeah. It's like, oh, like all the things that I did, because you can control your own behavior and you can't control the behavior of others. Mm. You know, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, you know, if I hadn't made that sale, if that woman had walked past and I hadn't caught her attention and started talking to her and made the sale, you know, we wouldn't have like, but in the same vein, like I might still be in that organization and I might still work for them and not know that all of the unscrupulous things that they do Mm. balance things up but I made the sale we had this huge dinner to celebrate and I was very much in like the people pleaser mode like these are my new colleagues I'm going to be the best most fun most outrageous most quirky like you know manic pixie dream girl that I can be to impress the guys that I work with and just be so chill and so cool you know, all of that behavior that you do when you just want to be accepted and you just want to belong. Yeah. And I'd spent so long feeling on the outer because of the experiences that we'd had. I was so desperate to be, you know, in the club with, with the cool kids in the in group. And so, you know, as the night progressed and we had dinner and my husband went home because he wasn't feeling like being out, which was fine. Mm you know, I was out with my two colleagues and I remember thinking to myself, like, well, I couldn't be much safer. Like I'm with these two people that I trust. Let's just have a fucking rager of a night. And we went from club to pub to whatever. And as it goes along, my memory gets more and more sketchy, but we eventually ended up at Revolver, which if you know Melbourne, you know, Revolver is probably not where you want to end up because it's Mm -hmm. 24 hour. There's all these urban legends about people dying and like falling behind the couch and ODing and not being found for days. Like it's oh, that kind of place. Okay. It's, yeah. It's it's not a quality venue. I feel, okay. I feel bad saying that on here, but you know, it's fun if that's your thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And we got there and yeah, my boss suggested to the other person that we were with the other colleague who was you know subordinate to him and this was a very hierarchical system that we worked Mm -hmm. in it was very clear where the power um where the power lay within the relationships within the team and I could tell that my colleague wasn't 
comfortable with it, but my boss suggested, oh, you should get us some, go find some drugs. Go find some drugs because this guy was younger and he was like, young person, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Go find some drugs. And I remember that was the first kind of little ping at the back of my mind. It was like, mm, am I okay with the, uh, mm, okay. Okay, no, don't, don't be that person. You know, people can live how they want to live. Don't be judgmental. Just be the cool girl and fit in. And then there was another incident that night where my boss threw me over his shoulder and like spanked me on the backside. And I remember looking at my colleague and being like, and he made a face. And that was the first time I was like, you know, I know you know that I know that this isn't really cool. But again, it was like power balance in the relationships and the team was like, we were both like, no, just just be cool, just be cool, don't be that person. And it was always that, don't be that person that, you know, rocks the boat or calls people out on their behavior, which is very much different to the person that I am now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, eventually someone got their hands on some ketamine, which I didn't realize was ketamine at the time. And the one of the main things, you know, if I close my eyes and I really try hard to remember is like my boss, my higher boss, holding out a key, like a physical door key that he'd scooped up a bit of ketamine and held it in front of my face. And I do very clearly remember that, like, again, that thought of like, "Mm," but then thinking like, you trust these people, you're just having fun, just do it. You'll be okay. You'll be fine. Don't be the stuck up person that calls someone out and says, oh, don't be that person. Just do it. And from there, it just goes so sketchy and so downhill so quickly because in my mind, it really jumps from memory to memory. It's like Mm -hmm. at the club and the bouncer slapped me on the legs because I'd fallen asleep or passed out because I was on drugs and I didn't know it was ketamine at the time. I didn't even really know what ketamine did back in 2017 until I researched it now. Um, And then I remember being in a taxi and I remember going around a corner and I hit my head. I was a rag doll and then I remember getting to my boss's house and getting out of the taxi and being like oh this isn't where I thought I was going and then the next thought is like going to sleep on the couch and thinking well I'm gonna sleep next to my other colleague because he's kind of young and you know I just want to make it really clear that I'm not trying to be near my boss because he's older and he kind of as soon as my husband left, he'd been flirting with me like quite outrageously, which made me feel very flattered at the time. And, you know, I even messaged our other colleague and was like, he's being very friendly in inverted commas. And the yeah. colleague was like, what do you mean? And I was like, mm, I know you noticed because we had that look when he smacked me on the butt and okay, it's fine. But I just, I made it very clear to myself that like, okay, I'm going to sleep at this end of the couch. Um, and yeah, from there, and I, I don't want to get too graphic because I obviously don't want to re-traumatize any listeners who have very similar experiences but you know there is uh interspersed memories uh of like you know a person being on top of me and trying to take bits of clothing off and doing things to me and I couldn't move I couldn't speak I couldn't open my eyes I could feel my other colleagues feet under the pillow under my head so I knew who it was and I remember thinking at the time like you know, I think a lot of people who are victims of assault will tell you, even if they are drunk or on drugs, that they have a moment of extreme clarity once they realize what's happening. And I remember lying there thinking, I can't tell him no, because I can't move and I can't speak. 
and I can't even look at him in a certain way because I can't open my eyes. And I remember starting to go through domestic violence statistics because obviously I'd worked in that area. And I was like, is it one in five or is it one in 20? Like one in five sexual assault, one in 20. Uh, uh. And eventually it got to the point where I felt like things were really escalating and I managed to um, get my left foot. And this is a memory that I've replayed a zillion times to kind of really make sure like, yes this is what happened yeah but I got my left foot and I got I put it up on his hip and I kicked back which is something that as a martial artist you know you do lots of groundwork drills and things like that like if someone's on top of you this is what you do mm. um and I remember kicking to the point where I could kind of with that kick turn onto my side and I remember the last thing thinking before I passed out because I was passing out in and out of consciousness was mm-hmm. if I am on my side my legs are together and then you can't fuck me yeah and yeah from that you know I I I very much have a good understanding of it now but you know immediately afterwards man you could have told me anything had happened that night and I would have chosen to believe that over Mm. what actually happened which I guess is what led me to so many complications in the process following because you know when we invalidate um, victims and we traumatize them with the way the system asks them to tell their story or the way the system hears their story it's you know it's it's so complex it's such a complex process for people to go through yeah so the morning after when you woke up in your boss's house what was the what was the first thing that you did? Was it to check if your boss was there? Was it to check if the mm. other colleague was there? I definitely remember waking up and my first thought was like, oh my God, I didn't go home last night and I had never not gone home before. Um, and so I know I took my colleague's phone because I couldn't find my handbag. Mm. And I, I messaged my husband to say like, hey, this is what happened. I think I passed out. I'm not sure why. Um, And then I fell back asleep and then I woke up because I remembered and I looked over and my boss's pants and underpants were on the ground next to me. So then in replaying things in my head, I was like, oh, fuck, it was, he had no clothes on. Like this wasn't someone kind of like slimily crawling over to you and like sucking on your face a little bit. This was like, this guy got fully undressed Mm. um and I remember when my colleague woke up and like pointing this out to him um and like starting to really freak out like my heart was pounding and I was looking around and I was so dazed and confused and my colleague just kept saying what happened what happened what happened I was like I like I knew (laughs) definitely knew but I was way too scared to say it Mm -hmm. so I coped with that by putting my head back down and pretending to go back to sleep um which is like you know ultimate denial I'm just not going to deal with it and then I remember when my boss came out from his room and um made us a barocca and then said that he'd drive us home when he was sober enough so then just laying there pretending to be asleep for the next hour or so freaking the fuck out in my head and not knowing what to do but also knowing you know, my partner was struggling so much at the time and, you know, what must he be thinking? I didn't come home 
last night. I don't want that to create problems. And that kind of through all of these really detailed scenario analysis of like, well, if I do this, what will happen? And if I say this, what will happen? And what did happen? And I'm not quite sure. And, you know, but he's close on the floor, but no, they, that wouldn't happen. Like, I can't accept that that would happen. And it was awful. And eventually I got home and things kind of, um, you know, he ended up driving us home and things really escalated with my partner because obviously, you know, he had no understanding of where I'd been, what had happened. Um, but because of that, I didn't say anything. I just thought to myself, which I think a lot of women in my situation would have done the same thing, which was, if I say this, it's just going to sound like I'm making an excuse, or maybe he'll think that I did something consensually and I'm trying to cover it up. Mm -mm. So I just kept my mouth shut, which was very uncomfortable. And I remember being like to remember those moments is almost disassociative in the sense that I can see myself in that memory, but I could never, I can't see it through my own eyes because I don't think I really remember. I was in such a heightened state. Mm -hmm. So what was that like then going back to work and then seeing your boss, like was he acting any different towards you, flirtatious, or was he just acting like nothing had happened that night, never happened? Mm. Um, I mean, I was getting text messages from him that same day I got home on the Sunday. And I remember trying to think like, how can I be strategic about this so that I don't lose my job or that so it doesn't complicate my job, my new job, my new fantastic job that is saving me from the depths of depression and the last couple of years that had been so, so hard how can I have this conversation with this man who I think sexually assaulted me? Um, but, you know, all of this whilst coming down off ketamine um, and incredibly hungover. Um, and I think he said something like, I, I said something in a text message like, um, I just hope I didn't do anything stupid last night, trying to kind of suss out like, is he going to deny the whole thing? Is he going to say it was consensual? And he just wrote back a Conor McGregor quote, which was sometimes we win, sometimes we learn. And I remember being like, well, that was really vague. And now I have no idea what's happening. But I went back to work the next day, which was a Monday. And work is at his house. So in his office, I'd in the meantime spoken to my other colleague, who was actually my direct report who I reported to mm -hmm. and said, you know, this is what I think happened. And he was very vague and very like, oh, well, I just don't know. Just not really quite sure. I don't, I didn't see anything. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to go to his house into his office until I know you're there. Made it very clear that like, I don't feel safe. Yeah. And I think I white knuckled my way through that meeting, literally gripping the chair because when I got there at last, the only chair left was next to, he who shall not be named mm -hmm. for legal reasons. And um, yeah, I don't really remember much, you know, when we're in a high, high state of fight or flight, we don't make short-term memories. So a lot of my memories from 2017 are snippets, you know, all very somatic in the sense that I feel things in my body much more than I can conceptually think about them or remember them specifically in my mind. So I remember getting through that and um, heading off to a job and he 
messaged me to say, you know, are you okay? You were a bit weird. And I just fobbed it off and said something like, oh, you know, I'm just recovering from the weekend or something. Cause I still like, I just didn't know what to do. You know, I'd done what I thought I was supposed to do, which was tell my direct report, which, you know, in any job, you kind of know that, well, you tell the person who supervises you, right? Mm. That's what you do. And then they escalate it because it's not the victim's job to take care of these matters, especially not in an organization. And what I have come to realize now is that I don't think as, as an organization, I don't think they have any policies or um, protocols in place for dealing with this because what I later realized in telling several people in that organization is that nobody knew how to respond. There was definitely no set way. It was all very like, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, one person even said to me, it's really hard, Rebecca, because I wasn't there. I'm like, really? It's hard? What? Hard for you? Yeah, that was uh... one of the more like, that was a couple of months down the track when I was much more of sound mind. I mean, not yeah. much, but more. And I remember hearing that and just being like, yeah, okay. I definitely understand now that none of you give a shit and that it is all about protection and saving face and this person's high up in this organization. So none of you have the balls to do anything about it. Mm. And with them mm. questioning what you were saying and questioning like how legitimate it was, did that make you question yourself? Like, did you think, did I consent to it? Was I just not aware? Like, did you question yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that's something that I, um, I speak about a lot whenever I talk about this for work or whether I'm speaking at events and things is to say, you know, I had every piece of information that you would need in order to make a sound and rational decision. But the problem is not the information. The problem is the way we support victims is, you know, we, we don't support them. In, in fact, we disempower them by um, rejecting this series of events rejecting um, them based on you know a very archaic gendered moral code of like the slut versus you know the prominent businessman and we force people to tell their story over and over and over again and when you're already struggling with not just you know I was drug affected and I was alcohol affected but I was also experiencing significant um, you know feelings of denial and not wanting to admit what happened it makes everything so, so much harder. And I think a really messy time in my life happened when I realized that what had happened was rape because it wasn't sex. I mean, it's never sex because sex is something that two consenting adults do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to my knowledge, um, he didn't have sex with me. He didn't rape me in the sense that we understand rape, but there are other acts that still constitute rape. And I remember thinking to myself for so long, at least I wasn't raped. At least I wasn't raped. It's okay because at least I wasn't raped. And then in one of my, you know, 2 a.m. research holes when I couldn't sleep and I started looking into this and I realized that what had happened did actually constitute rape. It Mm. really tore my world apart a little bit because I'd held onto this idea for so long that, no, I wasn't a rape victim. And that meant that I wasn't a sexual assault victim because, you know, no one really cares about it if it's not. Um, in a certain way and then realizing actually no you're, you're all of these things mm-hmm. that was it it was falling into that hole then led me to you know go on and become um, much better at asking for help but 
I just think we invalidate people. We invalidate victims. We invalidate women over and over again when really we just need to just listen. So in the coming weeks and months after the attack, what were some of the effects that it had on you, like whether it be your relationship to your partner to say, mm. you said that karate martial arts is a big part of your life. Did it affect like your, your health and fitness? Mm. And was it because you said earlier you had worked with people in domestic violence, you've mm. worked with domestic violence victims. Was there any effects that were surprising to you or were that you kind of expected because you kind because you already were you already had a basic understanding of it working with other people Mm. in that area I think you know based off all of those things I think that was a really big reason why the denial hit so hard um, because everything that had happened completely undermined who I thought I was as a person um, and who I had become uh, you know I had when this happened I had recently got back into karate and I was competing and I was becoming quite well known in my, um, you know, small martial arts bubble. And, you know, I did a lot of teaching and I was very vocal about, you know, my feminist thoughts and beliefs. And when this happened, I, I mean, not to mention the context of immediately following this, uh, he did pursue a relationship with me and I fell into that. And it's, it's such a difficult and I mean discombobulating thing to try to understand but you know I know that people who have some understanding of the context of domestic violence will know that a lot of domestic violence victims will continue to return to the perpetrator and will continue to pursue relationships with the perpetrator and I think I mean I don't know because I can't can't have conversations with this person even if I wanted to which I actually would really I really think would be productive. Um, But I think that, you know, his way of responding to what happened was to very much overcompensate and to throw himself into like, no, I really care about this person and I would never do anything to hurt her and look how much I like her. And I think he was overcompensating in that way. And I was also overcompensating in the way that like I convinced myself that if this person likes me or, you know, falls in love with me, then it makes what he did not matter. Like if he cares about me that much, obviously what happened was a mistake. So it was like the more I could seek his attention and his validation and his positive feedback and him seeking time with me, the more I could convince myself that what happened was an accident or, Mm. you know, he was just way too drunk and didn't realise. And because that happened and his wife found out, the whole thing blew apart and, you know, I just became the slutty little homewrecker, which at one point, you know, she called me to my face in front of a heap of people that we worked with and it it went down really badly. And I'll own all of my parts in that because I was dealing with some very messy, complicated, isolating feelings of my own and I still made decisions to do what I did and I understand the context of the decisions I made and trauma and how that can influence, but you know, I still made those decisions and I, I would never, I would never seek to limit my responsibility in that situation, Mm. but I lost my job. Uh, She, uh, his wife actually sent 
copies of his messages to the international vice president who ended up flying to Melbourne to meet with us and talk about what had happened. And I was very much caught up in this, like, he cares about me. I need him to care about me. And I wasn't conscious of this at the time, but like, I need him to care about me because if he cares about me, then, you know, what happened didn't matter. And so I followed the script that he gave me, which was, you know, tell them this, say this, don't participate in these conversations. I'm going to cover it. I'm going to be in charge of this. I'll take care of you. I won't throw you under the bus. And, you know, months later, I find out he did literally the opposite of all of that. Um, Painted himself as a sad and lonely husband whose wife had been pulling away from him and, you know, I was this young thing seeking to move through the ranks by attaching herself to a higher member. And um, his wife actually accused me of taking advantage of him, that he, he um, cons- consoled, uh, no, he um, confided in me about their relationship and I took advantage is what she said, which to her understanding is exactly what I did. And so, again, I'm not going to bash the women in this situation for being manipulated by a narcissistic a-hole um but yeah I got shoved into this other section of the company um under someone else who was also you know very toxic um leader who couldn't obviously understand why I became as he called it uh my head was like a basket full of cats but I'd gone from being one of the you know top selling salespeople in the organization to zero just like zero sales (laughs) just nothing and you know I had this awful guy overseeing me who used to say things to me like you know I just wish I could punch you in the face and I just was slowly descending into complete like catatonic depression my husband left because to him you know he only knew the outside story which was that I'd had an affair Um, I lost a lot of friends my family I can see now really withdrew I mean they they kind of teetered between like you know coming and you know holding me and cradling me to not knowing what the hell I was doing like really pulling the hair out about like what is going on with her we just don't understand and you know a testament to the female friendships in my life my best friend Meredith you know she says she reflects on that time and my husband went to her house and stayed there and stayed with her and her husband but Meredith was so conscious of the changes that had occurred within me. And, you know, she'll say to you now, like she just knew something had happened and she couldn't put her finger on it and she couldn't say what it was, but she just knew that the change in my behaviour had been so stark and the contrast between who I was and who I'd become and what everyone said I did, it didn't add up. I mean, in the meantime, I still went off and won a world championship, which I just think is, amazing (laughs) Um, (laughs) yes amongst all that (laughs) amongst all of that I fought my way to a world championship in karate and you know I I think it's very funny to think about because like if I could do that at the height of um, depression anxiety suicidality you know I had very clear plans in my head about the level to which I would exist and if it got past a certain level of pain that I would end my life and how I would do it you know that's where I was at the time yet I could still direct my focus into exactly what I need to do in the ring um and I could still come out on top so if I could do that then imagine what I'm actually capable of yes Mm. so what happened 
then afterwards? Because last time we spoke, you said that you then proceeded to take things to court. And mm. as I was, I've spoken to several other domestic, uh, domestic violence victims and sexual assault victims, and they say mm. that sometimes the most traumatic event is actually the aftermath is going to court mm. because it's just so the justice system is fucked up a basic way to say that so what was yep. your experience doing all that and also mm. tr- and also again feeling like you have to pretty much convince people that you're not a liar and that yeah. convince him that he is actually a narcissistic asshole like what how did you deal with that yeah. and also mental health wise because you also had deep mm. depression absolutely i mean the whole process started when I finally told my husband, mm. which I think it's very easy from an outside perspective. And when I worked in domestic violence, I just didn't understand why these women behaved the way they behaved. It just didn't make sense to me. Like, leave him. It's easy. You just leave. But when you actually experience uh, events like this, you realize the complexity. And, you know, the, the first thing was telling my husband and, you know, he it really shook him because he'd left that night. Like he'd been there with us and he'd left. And I know that that's definitely something that probably to this day weighs quite heavily on him. But yeah, I I think that and then coming out to my close friends about what had happened. And it, I think for a lot of them, it really put into context like, oh, like we now understand like all of this completely batshit behavior that you've had and going on these huge manic highs and then dropping off the face of the planet for weeks and we don't know if you're alive it suddenly made so much sense um uh it was really interesting as well that that happened right at the height of me too and with people like ashley judd and rose mcgowan coming out and speaking about their abuse at the hands of people like harvey weinstein and Mm. i definitely didn't come to definitely didn't come to the party easily i had gone from being this martial artist, this strong advocate for women's rights, this, you know, ex-domestic violence worker. And this happened to me. And I think most of all, I was just angry at everything and everyone and sad about the fact that I now was dealing with such an intense level of trauma and, you know, a loss of control of my own body. I would have panic attacks and, you know, my husband would, you know, brush past me in the wrong way and it would send me into a complete meltdown so me too happened and I was so angry at everything I hated everyone who posted about it on Facebook everyone who marched everyone who was vehemently discussing it at dinner parties I fucking hated all of them because I felt so held back from speaking up and I think I hated my pre-assault self because I saw in all of that behavior the kind of person I used to be and the kind of person that I wanted to be. And I'm literally having this realization as we speak. So if I get a little bit vague, cause I'm having a massive breakthrough in my head. Um, <laughs> holy shit. Um, yeah. So I just, I hated me too. And I didn't want to speak up and it was kind of one of those situations that I think a lot of victims go through and like, no, 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 you don't understand. My story is different. I can't speak out because my story is different. Um, and I very much was afraid, you know, I didn't necessarily work for the organization, but I still had quite a bit to do with them. And I was just afraid, you know, I told so many people and no one cared. I thought, I didn't think going to the police or going to services was going to make much difference because in my little world, 
99% of people didn't give a fuck and the other 1% of person didn't do anything about it. Like people like to get very angry about this stuff, but then you ask them to put their name to something or to speak up about something or speak out for you. And no, that's not my place. I'm like, what's everybody's place? And so mostly I think I spent two good years being angry at the world. And then I guess the further away from that event I got further away from those people and eventually completely disconnecting myself from the organization altogether I you know I started to slowly put put together all these ideas in my head of like well change doesn't happen if we don't talk about it and the I guess you know the most direct form of action that we can take is to report what happens to us and I think I said it in another podcast interview uh, last year that, you know, I had this dream in my head of one day inciting every single woman in the country who's been a victim of gender violence to go to the police and make their statements on the same day because I think the whole system would completely collapse. It wouldn't cope. You'd have literally have lines out the door of every police station in the whole country. Um, And I just think what a powerful moment that would be to Mm. actually finally be faced with the true consequences, which is, you know, every single woman coming together and just completely um, devastating the system with, uh, with the, the magnitude of this issue, because I I still think to this day, we kind of, we still attach ourselves to the myth of the, bad guy it's like the dun dun law and order special victims unit version of rape which is the bad guy in the alley and the monster and the you know fucked up mental health or you know sociopathic psychopathic narcissistic whatever um when really we know that you know a huge portion much much more than that the, the clear majority is rape and assault and abuse perpetrated by men that we know and in private residence. I think the most challenging thing about the domestic violence system is, or the the justice system, sorry, is the fact that it is only set up for the monster in the dark alley. And the woman who immediately responds to that by calling for police and getting help. And I actually really love special victims. I watch it a lot. I think it's because I want to have an Olivia Benson in my life. And then I (laughs) realized that I had to be my own Olivia Benson. which is kind of frustrating. I would love yeah. someone out there like that. But, um, you know, the the law and order version just doesn't stack up. And if that's all we have capacity to respond to, then we're letting down 90% of victims, which we, we already are. Like RMIT did a study recently that I was reading into innovative responses to sexual assault and violence of that nature and they said that as a society we convict less than one percent less than one percent so as a society it just shows how many fucks we give about women and their experiences compared to the experiences of men generally Mm -hmm. um, when we have these statistics and we don't do anything about it we don't care so with your case, I know that there's certain details you obviously you can't say due to mm. legal reasons, but whereabouts in the case are you right now against mm. your ex-boss? I accepted a job in 2019 in Canada and I stayed up very late one night because I couldn't sleep 
and just decided I'm going to go into Socket, which is the Sexual Offences and Child Abuse Investigation Team, which is the police that deal with these cases. I'm going to go in, I'm going to report it, and then I'm going to go to Canada and I'll just block everyone and delete everyone and then they can deal with it all and then I'll come home. It was, it was how I could compartmentalise in a way that I could be the woman that I wanted to be and seek justice but also be as safe as possible in a completely different hemisphere literally in a teepee in the middle of a forest in the middle of a national park in the middle of a country that no one could get to me um and I did that and I went in and I informally spoke to a a, um, detective and he said I would have to come back and do a formal statement which I didn't end up doing before I went to Canada but that was my first step and that was tangible and I could do it and to his credit, that detective was actually fantastic um, from Knox Socket. And when I came home from Canada, I went and made an official statement on the 11th of November. I thought I'd up my chances being 11 a.m. on the 11th of the 11th <laughs> in terms of good juju. Yes. But it didn't make mm-hmm. any difference. <laughs> Uh, and then yeah the investigation took nearly 12 months I've only just recently got the outcome which is that it is he said she said and based on the fact that there is no corroborating evidence or really evidence of any kind that they weren't going to proceed and on the one hand being the daughter of a lawyer I understand the concepts of evidence I understand that the police are somewhat hamstrung in this situation because they can't take cases to court that they can't prove. Mm. Um, but I mean, the whole the whole dealing with police was frustrating in the sense that they're so overworked, they barely have time to get back to your messages or emails or phone calls. Yeah. But also, I don't think they really rate this level of violence against women as incredibly significant. I just think they have a bit of an attitude. I, I got the sense that they had a bit of an attitude that this was just kind of part of the course and this is just what happens. And, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where the police officer who called me to say it wasn't going through used the, her reason was that he has flirty text messages from you. And I was like, yeah, well, all of that is in my statement. None of that mm. was hidden. I was, I, you know, again, daughter of a lawyer. I understand the concept that going into court, um, that I will be cross-examined if it got to that point. And, you know, I just need to be upfront with everything because if I put every single detail that I can possibly remember into my statement, they can't hurt me with anything. If I can be upfront, explain everything in my terms and from my perspective, everything, literally everything I did and everything that he did, but really owning every part of my story, they can't turn it on me they can't use it against me and I really thought that was a smart thing to do or a weapon in my defense but it didn't seem to matter I mean I sent a 26 page document in you know size 10 aerial font it's huge it's thousands of pages uh, thousands of words long Mm. Um, details times messages that were sent who said what, phone numbers of every single person that I spoke to, every single psychologist I've seen, every single sexual assault counsellor that I'd seen, I sent that to the police. When I got in there on the day, it was very clear that the detective hadn't read it. I was like, you know what, 
maybe she just wants to hear it all from my mouth and see that it's consistent with, with what's on the paper. Like, I, I guess I understand that. And yeah. to then get the phone call of like, he had text messages from you that I was like, did he even have to prove that the number that they were saved under was my number? Or did he just literally hold up this screen that says Beck and the flirty text messages? Like also, doesn't it indicate to you that if he still has text messages from 2017, that maybe he's kept them and deleted certain ones to make it look a certain way? No, do we? No, all I got was he had text messages that were flirty and therefore we're not going to proceed. And I just remember on the one hand being incredibly disappointed, but on the other hand being incredibly validated that everything I've said and raged about and complained about and kicked up a fuss about with the you know the justice system was right how could I think it would be any different yeah maybe I'll be the special one maybe I'll be the one that gets through maybe if I fight hard enough no I think one of the most frustrating things is that we are still treating this as an evidence-based issue and Mm. that because of that we don't take into account concepts of trauma we don't take into account concepts of manipulation we don't take into account concepts of women's response to violence or even just the idea that like a lot of the time women you know are very conscious of what is happening and seeking to preserve their way of life and Mm. we act from a place of trying to keep ourselves safe Mm -hmm. what is the safest thing for me to do right now is it to go out and rage when I've already made it clear to someone what happened and they didn't take me seriously or is it safer to play along and to you know, just go along with this, what's happening. And maybe you can control it at certain points. Like it's, it's much more, I think from a, a victim, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word victim because I don't, I know that not everyone identifies with that, but at mm-hmm. that point immediately after, from the point of view of the victim, if people aren't going to keep you safe, if you speak up and people aren't going to keep you safe, you very quickly turn everything inwards and like, how can I keep myself safe? No one else in this situation clearly gives a fuck. So what can I do to keep myself safe? And that looks very counterintuitive on the outside. You know, that looks like playing along with the person, um, going along with things that they suggest, you know, setting yourself limits of like, well, I'll write back to text messages, but I'll just, I'll just make up an excuse every time he wants me to come over. And, you know, this guy was actively pursuing me to the point where when my husband left, he was calling me at 11 30, 12 o'clock at night. And again, I didn't want to lose my amazing job that was pulling me out of the depths of depression and hell that I'd been in for the past five years. So I was sitting there on the phone at night. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Oh, of course. Oh yeah. Wonderful. Great. I love these suggestions. Oh no, I can't come over right now. You know, I don't have enough petrol or something and making up excuses. You know, he was literally Buddha calling me. He called me when he was drunk. He called me when he went to try and reunify with his wife and he was staying with a backpack at a backpackers and he got drunk and he called me at like two o'clock in the morning. He, yeah, he did lots of vile and awful things on the phone as you can probably use your imagination yeah. when men are drunk and trying to get a booty call. And yeah, oh man, it'd be so nice to know if his wife listened to this because she would know exactly the situations that I'm talking about. Um, and probably see things from a whole new perspective. But the police and the way we operate in terms of an evidence-based model and beyond that, based on a beyond reasonable doubt model, it is just so ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention our system of penalising people. 
which again will sound really counterintuitive, but this RMIT report that I've been going through into innovative responses to sexual violence talks about as we increase the punitive measures, we actually decrease the amount of cases that we see coming through successfully because um, people aren't pleading guilty. People won't plead guilty if they think they're going to get 25 years. If they think they might get a community corrections order or have to do some reparative justice or have, you know, some other uh, more qualitative justice responses versus simply locking someone up for an amount of time yeah you know what this report suggests is that having more like I said qualitative responses having the perpetrator have to face their victim and acknowledge what they did no one is going to do that if they think they're going to get 25 years and I mean I can only speak to my perspectives and Mm. my experience of what I've been through but to have a face-to-face apology and acknowledgement you know, I've said this for a long time and whilst part of me, especially as a coach, thinks I shouldn't be basing my healing on the need for something from someone else. And I'm not. I mean, I've moved on and I'm I'm very much okay and at peace with things, but it would still mean a lot to me to have that person face me as my friend, my teacher, my mentor, my, mm. you know, colleague and say, I'm really sorry that I did this. I'm really sorry that that happened. That's you know, it absolutely shouldn't have happened and I take full responsibility. But if he's going to face 15 years and for rape, if he's going to face 20 plus years, he's never going to do that. doesn't Mm. matter what situation I encourage. You know, I've gone through all these scenarios in my head of like, what if I get a private house and some private security and I'll invite him over and I'll make him discuss it and I'll make him apologize. You know, he's never going to do that if he, you know, thinks that he's going to end up facing 20 plus years. And I think it's actually robbing a lot of victims of the ability to heal or to find peace because no part of our system encourages people to take responsibility for what they've done. Well, I thank you so much for just being so open about your experiences and just going back through memory lane pretty much of like everything that's happened. Mm. And I'm so sorry if this has been overwhelming for you or if this is like re-traumatized by going through all these events, but I really do appreciate it. I'm okay. I like raging now. It's become, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a very healing thing for me. I'm very happy to put it all out there. And if people have a negative response or don't agree with me or think that I am the slutty little homewrecker, that's Mm. fine. They can think that because I've completely let go of any need for anyone to believe me. I believe me. That's about all I need. My husband believes me. The people I love believe me to have someone in the general public have something to say about it. that's negative. You know, I really couldn't give two shits. That was Beck Cameron. Thank you everyone for listening to my interview today. If any of our conversations were triggering, please contact 1-800-RESPECT or head on over to reachout.com for more information about sexual assault support areas in your states and territories. For more on Beck and her story, visit the Beck Cameron Coach on Instagram. And also for more stories on intersectional feminism, make sure you scroll back through our archive of podcast episodes and visit our Instagram and Facebook pages. I'm your host, Demi Lynch. And I will see you all next week for another episode of the Nasty Woman Club 